0: There exists a literature on Muslim communities in Europe that is so vast as to require bibliographies, like uh, Felice D'Asceto and Yves, Yves Conrad's now woefully outdated uh, Muslim文化 on Europe Occidental, to be adequately surveyed. Despite its great, great bulk, however, this material dates for the most part to comparatively recent times. Indeed, scholarly, journalis- scholarly, journalistic, and policy work on Muslims in Europe only comes to constitute a genre from the 1980s much after the great waves of migration that established such populations in countries like Britain, France, the Netherlands, and Germany after the Second World War, in a context defined by decolonization and the opening of European labor markets. Starting with the study of these migrant communities, the literature on Muslims in Europe has moved on to locate them within a longer history of interaction between Christians, Muslims, and Jews on the continent, sometimes stretching as far back as Charlemagne, Arab Spain, and the Crusades, but more often beginning with the movement of Muslim diplomats, merchants, and adventurers in the 18th century. So basically the earlier work of the genre is all in the, you know, in the category of race relations and mm-hmm. ethnic migration studies. Right? It doesn't really deal with religion almost at all. Uh, Muslims are simply one migrant like others. Um, in fact their Muslim nature is rarely taken into consideration. It's only much later that all the stuff of the crusades and um, you know all that comes to um, become important. Parallel to this narrative exists another having to do with the Muslim population in those parts of Europe that came under Ottoman rule and even some work on the long-established communities of Tatars in Russia. The extensive literature on Muslims in Europe, which in its academic mode emerges from every discipline of the humanities and social sciences has no doubt opened up new ways of conceiving the continent's history and perhaps even that of the globe. Yet in other respects its focus is so anachronistic as to be dishonest. For although the individuals and groups described in this literature might well be Muslim, there is no reason to assume that the role they played in Europe, whether in their own eyes or those of their neighbours, had invariably to be defined by Islam in this earlier period. Surely the absence of Muslims as subjects of academic and other interest, at least before the 1980s, demonstrates that whatever the blindness of observers in those times, such a population did not in fact exist politically or culturally at the continental and even national level. By making the false assumption of Muslim continuity, a great deal of the scholarship on such populations is not only unable to see the discontinuities in the history of European immigration, but it's consequently also capable of systematically underplaying the commonality of migrant experience across religious lines. So, you know, the the current almost obsession with writing histories of Muslims in Europe that go back, you know, as far as you can imagine, of course, they're all very worthy and worthwhile, uh, but they run the risk of really, um, I think, um, uh, misunderstanding the disjunctures of that history as much as anything else because they read back Muslim identity and Muslim politics to periods in which they don't necessarily belong. Um, by making the false assumption of Muslim continuity as I said a great deal of the scholarship on such populations is not only unable to see continuity in the history of European migration but is consequently also capable of systematically underplaying the commonality of migrant experience across religious lines. Is it at all possible to speak of Muslim population in Europe before the end of the Cold War, given that its religious practices tended to be confined within the discrete bonds of language and locality within different Muslim groups, as indeed is the case today. The Cold War was was as important an event for Muslim immigrants as it was for the European countries in which they settled. For it was only with the collapse of the Soviet Union that Islam came to assume a role of its own on the continent. Before inquiring into the implications of this emergence, however, I want to point out that the Cold War represented such a disjuncture in Europe's history, such a disjuncture in Europe's history that very few of the ways in which Muslims had been considered during the imperial past of nations like Britain, France, or Holland assumed any importance when they migrated to these countries so in the united kingdom which became the chief destination of muslims from south asia the categorization of people in religious terms so familiar from colonial times was abandoned in favor of racial regional and national classifications that frequently club hindus sikhs and muslims or indians pakistanis and bangladeshis together under rubrics like asian right so the actually what you see is a, is a, is, a, is, a, is a great separation uh, what current, present-day histories tell us is that there is this continuous development. right? But what you see in this Cold War period, when you have Muslim populations actually uh, coming to Europe, the colonial categories are not operative. right? They have been discontinued. Uh, and I think that is partly, uh, or largely the result of the Cold War itself. Um, similarly, the narrative of pan-Islamism quite lost its importance in this period, despite its former prominence and only reappeared as an ally of the West during the Cold War's last battle in Afghanistan. So you don't have much talk about pan-Islamism, though it had been very important in the colonial times. Mm -hmm. In other words, while it was clear that some migrants to Britain happened to be Muslim, a population dominated by Pakistanis from the Punjab or Kashmir on the one hand, and Bangladeshis from Silat on the other, their religious identification never assumed sufficient political or cultural importance to preempt these migrants' ethnicity or place of origin. Of this, the most illustrative example is is undoubtedly undoubtedly the slur Paki, used in the very recent past to define neither religion nor nationality but race. How then did a section of South Asian migrants in Britain and increasingly the European continent come to be defined as Muslims? It has become a cliché to note that the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 in the United States transformed world world politics, and among other things, gave rise to novel security procedures that profiled some Muslims in the West, while targeting a number of their co-religionists in military operations elsewhere. Yet I want to argue that such laws and procedures only consolidated existing narratives about Muhammad's followers in Europe and America, rather than creating new lines of political, political reasoning there thus providing us with one example of how unoriginal the response to global forms of militancy has been on the intellectual front. So I don't think 9-11 created a whole slew of new categories etc. I do not however mean by this that policymakers and the general public in Western countries simply reached for a common stock of assumptions or prejudices to deal with their Muslim neighbors in the aftermath of 9-11 but want rather to suggest that despite the rhetoric of novelty in which they are routinely mired, these events were in fact located within a quite different history defined by the end of the Cold War. My task in this paper will be to show that Islam and its adherents have neither come to constitute new historical actors after the terrorist attacks in America, nor indeed to serve merely as the victims of stereotyping and discrimination in Europe. Instead I will contend that apart from its particular implications upon the lives of Muslims resident there, The war on terror has had little conceptual effect, not least because it has been absorbed by another historical problem, that of rethinking Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Prior to this event, capitalism and communism constituted the globe's only actors, state-based ideologies that had divided its hemispheres into eastern and western halves that had little to do with the orientations by which former empires had defined themselves. I will claim here that Islam has not only emerged as a putative global agent in the wake of the Cold War, but in doing so has put into question the political status of a newly federated Europe as well. But this means that the more Mus- that the more Muslims are invoked in controversies on the continent, the less are such debates about them and th- and more about Europe itself. As a political rather than merely ethno- rather than merely demographic entity, Muslims in Europe tend to be viewed not simply as a minority, but rather as part of a global constituency. Whatever it owes to earlier worries about pan-Islamism in the days of Europe's empires, this manner of considering the continent's Muslims has to do as much with the creation of the European Union and therefore the necessity of thinking about politics in a way that is not confined within national boundaries. In this sense, debates having to do with Islam, as indeed over other issues seen as being primarily European in character, represent anxieties about the coming to light of a new political arena uh, beyond the nation-state. And so Muslims are seen as posing a problem of the same kind as a single currency or laws made in Brussels, though their greater visibility may also render these latter concerns more tolerable as part of our common European civilization, a threat from global Islam. Of course Muslims in Europe are not the passive observers of their transformation into a global threat, but have driven this process from the very beginning. So the first manifestation of their emergence as a political constituency of an extraterritorial kind was arguably with the controversy over the British writer Salman Rushdie's book The Satanic Verses, published just as the Cold War ended in 1989. Starting in an unprecedented manner with protests against the author's portrayal of Muhammad among immigrant communities in the north of England, the controversy spread to their places of origin in Pakistan and India, finally becoming the first among several global demonstrations of Muslim solidarity by way of the television and press coverage uh, it received. It is interesting to note that subsequent manifestations of such mobilization, for example the protest over Danish cartoons of the Prophet in 2005 or the Pope's comments about him in 2006 have also originated among immigrant communities in Europe and all being provoked by insults alleged to have been delivered Muhammad. If anything, this history of protest tells us how uh, how new traditions of Muslim solidarity are formed and makes it clear that their global character is somehow tied up with that of Europe. Indeed, it even seems as if Muslim solidarity can only be manifested in European terms since no matter how well-publicized they might be, similar insults to the Prophet in other parts of the world, not least in Muslim countries, have never achieved global notoriety, however effusive the protests they provoke at the local or national level. Such, for instance, was the case of the Bangladeshi writer Daslema Nasreen, whose journalism of many years suddenly became controversial in the aftermath of Rashidi's infamy, even though the attempt by Islamic parties in Bangladesh to achieve global celebrity by attacking her did not meet with much success. However, the global nature of these controversies resides not in their geographical dispersal, so much as in the fact that they appeal ostensibly to non-political causes, like insults to the Prophet, that are held to affect Muslims universally, and without distinction. Whether or not such insults are viewed as illustrations of a wider political antagonism between the Muslim world and the West, in other words, their global character is defined morally by using the language of respect denied rather than in a legal or geop- rather than legal or geopolitical terms so that's what strikes me quite interesting about these global mo- mobilizations they are not explicitly political they make no political claims they are all about respect friendship recognition apology etc uh, their language is purely ethical no reparations you know no nothing like that Unlike protests over the treatment of Muslims in Bosnia, Chechnya or Kashmir, those engaged by insults to the Prophet do not single out a particular place or population that others are meant to identify with, but in affecting them all universally moves solidarity itself from an international to a global dimension. It's not Palestine and therefore you know, there is no geographical location really. And though at every level these protests certainly involve political concerns of a more conventional sort, their strictly religious phraseology and global constituency does nothing more than put into question the inherited categories of European politics. And from the richly controversy became clear that these categories ranged from the nation state itself to those of race, class and region, which had been the political building blocks of post-war Europe. After all, Muslim immigrants in the days before the publication of Rushdie's novel were dealt with by European governments in terms of race, class, nationality or neighbourhood and not primarily by religion. For even the great debates over Middle Eastern events like the Islamic revolution in Iran were engaged with along the geopolitical lines of Cold War tradition. Like what's Russia going to do, how, etc. Erupting into a new global arena that came to light with the end of the Cold War, Movements of Islamic solidarity transformed the vocabulary of conventional politics. Just as the Soviet Union, uh, just as the Soviet collapse resulted in class warfare being downgraded from an international language to a local dialect of politics, so too, did the, so too did the rise of global forms of Muslim protest have as their consequence the dismantling of race as a political category in Europe. So, in Britain, for example, we have seen the collapse of attempts to build a black political alliance while more discrete classifications like Asian are also being questioned, with the focus of government as much as media moving to the different religious communities that constitute them. This emphasis on religious groups as a society's basic political actors possesses, of course, a long colonial history. And such definitions are therefore as familiar to Muslim immigrants from places like South Asia as they are to the British state. There's nothing new about them in some sense. I shall return to the important role played by the colonial past in the debate over Europe's Muslim populations, and want to note here only that this discussion seems caught between racial and religious idioms that cannot be collapsed into a single category. In fact, disputes over forms of Muslim visibility like veils or minarets in some parts of Europe might indicate attempts to cling on to some sort of racial script much as the visibility of poverty, drug use, teenage pregnancy, and crime is used to mark other minority populations without any biological theory of race having to be invoked. Naturally, in arguing that race is being dismantled in Europe, I am not suggesting that racism or race consciousness has disappeared from the continent, only that immigrant communities have uh, immigrant communities there have been rearranged into a new hierarchy, with Muslims occupying its summit of visibility. Moreover, since Islam cannot be racially defined and is seen as a global threat partly because of partly because it of names of a bewildering array of ethnic groups, including European converts, even when they are the objects of racial prejudice, Muslims end up fragmenting race itself as a political category. And this despite the fact that in Europe, followers of the Prophet continue to associate with with one another and worship along ethnic and linguistic lines, not Muslim uh, solidarity. Only the young and educated, those who are fully integrated into European societies and who communicate in their official languages are capable of forming ethnically diverse associations of Muslims. The more integrated in a way, the more Muslim in another. And it is precisely from this population that militants and moderates emerge. Both groups united by the fact that their ideas of Islam are as likely to come from Western sources in Western languages and by way of close interaction with the West than they are to derive from some traditional model of religious education. But of course the clearest example of the way in which the language of global Islam has triumphed over that of race has to do with the fact that many if not most of Europe's racist parties have redefined their narratives to target Muslims rather than blacks or Jews as a chief threat to civilized society in the West. Indeed, this is so much the case that groups like the English Defense League have welcomed Sikhs, West Indians, and others as fellow travelers in the project to defend the world against Islam. By pushing aside the vocabulary of biological determinism, this transformation of racial reasoning ends up evoking not some threatened European purity so much as defending the fairly commonplace western values of freedom tolerance and even diversity against muslim totalitarianism and in taking on such values racist groups are not only coming into the european mainstream by slowly casting off their biological concerns but also demonstrating that their new passions possess an entirely legitimate provenance after all it is not coincidental um, uh, th- these are the very values that were for so long upheld by capitalist Democracies against communism and therefore represent the Cold War's legacy to these new conflicts of religion or civilization that appear to have succeeded it. You know, once you're accusing other people of being totalitarian and upholding the freedom of you know, tolerance and all the rest, the prehistory of that is not the battle of civilizations, the mm-hmm. prehistory of that is the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Right. Observers at, at the time noted the specifically, and sorry. Observers at the time noted the specificity of anti-Muslim prejudice in Europe in the wake of the Rushdie controversy, and soon a neo- neologism was coined for it with the word Islamophobia. Whatever the merits of this term, those who deploy it tend to describe Islamophobia as a form of racism, uh, as in the influential report on the phenomenon by the Runnymede Trust in 1997. By tying discrimination against Muslims into the received language of race relations, however, this approach is unable to recognize Islamophobia's role in the breakdown of race as a political category. In fact, racism in Europe seems increasingly to be abandoning its old biological formulae in favor of liberal shibboleths, to the degree that there is often very little rhetorical distance between the two ideological forms, which makes Mr. Theosarazin, etc., mm-hmm. possible, right? Because it's the same language that's being deployed. It is as if the victory of liberalism over its Marxist antagonist at the end of the Cold War led to the collapse of all other forms of ideological autonomy as well. But whether racist parties are disingenuous in referring to such liberal verities, or if in doing so they simply reveal the otherwise hidden potential of these principles, diversity, tolerance, etc., the ostensible hegemony exercised by liberalism in its capitalist and democratic aspect needs to be questioned. One reason why Islam after the Cold War cannot be said merely to have taken Communism's place as the West's new enemy, as was said you know, um, uh, in the days of the Iranian Revolution, mm. um, has to do with the fact that this Occident passed into history together with its Marxist rival. For in retrospect, the supposedly triumphal narrative of Western dominance, as manifested in massively popular books like the American philosopher Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man, Turn out to have been anxious attempts to redefine NATO's role in a new and increasingly unpredictable political landscape, marked, among other things, by the revival of xenophobic nationalism and ethnic cleansing in parts of Europe itself. And just as the Occident was being redefined for a global arena in the form of temporary coalitions among a changing list of geographically dispersed countries dedicated to military action against some recalcitrant nation, so too was Islam being redefined as an historical actor in equally transitory coalitions of protesting believers. So, you know what you have is the West or the Occident, you know, repeatedly recreated, temporarily recreated, you know, in these great coalitions uh, against in the first Iraq War, in Serbia, in Kosovo, right? And at the same time, you have the temporary Islamic coalitions um, bringing together similarly dispersed people, countries, etc. Um, we are not talking about the old Cold War blocks, in other words, right? Both cases illustrate that the global arena lacks political institutions of its own and can only be occupied intermittently by actors with, uh, with pretensions to planetary influence. This situation was first described in another famous book by an American political scientist, Samuel Huntington's The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order which identified in conceptual terms the momentous political consequences wrought by the end of the Cold War. Whatever its other weaknesses, this book, written for a general audience, had the singular merit of pointing out that the global arena coming to light after the Soviet collapse called for a transformation of political agency. Instead of merely celebrating, or on the contrary, bemoaning the West's triumph and proceeding to analyze the perils of its hegemony, Huntington sought to sketch the theoretical framework for an entirely novel politics. In effect, he argued that the global arena could no longer be defined by statist politics once its hemispheric configuration had come apart with the Cold War's sudden ending. But having already come into existence, this arena, the global arena, could not give way to the kind of international politics that had preceded it either. And in the absence of conventional institutions to ground it, the global arena came to be defined by struggles that Huntington described as being based upon the values of civilization instead of the ideologies of states. And on the rhetorical register, at least nothing could characterize the so-called global war on terror better than this formulation, fought as its battles are between competing orders of value with no geographical limits. Now the word civilization, Huntington's use of it, like race, was last deployed as a category of international politics in the days of European imperialism. In a set of lectures collected under the title society must be defended, the French historian Michel Foucault argued that race in this period named a politics beneath politics, referring in this way to a host of uncharted demographic interactions in particular countries as much as the world at large that were held to constitute the unrecognized truth of politics as such. The thing about racism In the 19th century is arguing is that, you know, it it claims that, look, this is the real politics, it's at the level of race, and it goes beyond institutional states, right, and our anxiety is that politicians don't recognize this, or only do so fitfully. Um, Those who made the racial argument then, believed that its truth was ignored within the institutions of national and international order, which in their eyes were concerned with superficialities. Not only did the geopolitics of racism, in Foucault's view, delineate the outlines of an emerging global arena that the institutions of Europe's state system were unable to colonize, it also attempted to occupy this new world by giving political life to planetary categories like an Aryan or white brotherhood that had in the past possessed a very limited social existence. While Foucault did not include include it in his argument, it is easy to see how civilization, which alongside race was a great staple of European imperialism, has come to play a similar role in our own time by naming another mode of politics beneath politics. So I want to argue that Foucault makes this, makes this argument about race, but a similar argument can be made about the category, twin category civilization. Unlike the more or less constant hierarchies of race, however, civilization represented the liberal aspect of imperialism because in stereotyped forms such as the civilizing mission, it was premised upon the possibility of change and held out the promise of equality for all in some gener- generally undefined future. Indeed, civilization, or rather the time and training needed to inculcate it, provided the only liberal justification for colonialism, as is evident from works from the works of liberalism's founding fathers, men of such eminence as John Stuart Mill it is also clear um, that civilization is in this way intimately related to the notion of progress and development whose promotion is even now used to justify the postponement of political freedom for some. So, you know, the ideology for imperialism in its civilizing form is, you know, it's not a native thing, it's with us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we call it development. Uh, for instance, one of the things we call it perfectly acceptable for face of it. Because it involves... Um, it involves um, the idea of training of historical, the necessity of historical training, right, or of, um, of progress through time under someone else's supervision. And so by latching onto this term today, civilization, parties on the far right are staking a claim to liberalism in another example of the process of ideological narrowing that are described above. So even the claim to civilization is not a you know, a a dreadful right-wing conspiratorial claim, I would say. After all, as distinguished from race, civilization has the advantage of shifting political argument from nature to history, so that even when particular people or their possessions are attacked in ways that have hitherto been called racist, the target is always said to be a set of values they represent and are asked only to abjure in order to be integrated as Europeans crucial about this demand for integration is that it falls squarely within the tradition of secularism upon which so many states in in continental Europe, unlike the United Kingdom with its established church, have been founded. One that in theory seeks to forbid religion any role in public life. For though it may have links with older narratives of integration as a way of erasing visible uh, differences of a secular kind, including language and clothing, Today's rhetoric of assimilation prides itself on its tolerance of non-religious differences in conventionally liberal ways, and however disingenuously returns to the classical uh, theories of secular citizenship for which religion alone is important, right? So you you go back to this notion of secularism in which it it really is religion. You know, other forms of difference are okay. Um, Thus, in the furious debate about banning Muslim women's headscarves in France, It is now difficult to tell the difference between high-minded secularists and racist pretenders, both of whom take recourse to the same reasoning. Um, On the other hand, the increasingly common appeal to civilization undermines this secular form of argumentation, since in contemporary debates, a suitably sanitized version of Christianity is considered to lie at the heart of Western civilization. Apart from bringing Christianity back to political life in this way, the language of civilization Uh, mobilized to face the threat of global Islam is therefore transforming rather than merely defending Europe's secular tradition, in the same way as it has transformed the politics of race there. Just as the debate on integration is no longer linked to some ethnic uniformity of citizenship within the nation-state, but rather to a conflict of civilizations for which the latter provides only one site, so too does the argument about secularism now stand apart from from a national arena referring as it does to an encounter of civilizations whose context can only be global. Right? So it's secularism again in a way gets provincialized in this wider debate. Given its imperial lineage, the irony of today's clash of civilizations is that, in the opinion of many of its upholders, Islam is seen as posing Europe the same kind of threat that colonialism had presented the Muslim world not so long ago. Thus, in the whole series of books detailing this conflict of values, among which the most recent and superior publication is undoubtedly the American journalist Christopher Caldwell's Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam and the West, the focus is firmly on the settlement of Muslim populations in Europe, their unwillingness to integrate, attempts at converting Christians to Islam, and finally the subversion and even conquest of host societies by a set of alien values. With the necessary transposition of identities, these are exactly the same fears that had once been voiced by colonized peoples in Asia and Africa. Such beliefs were perhaps most famously expressed during the Indian Mutiny of 1857, when the Bengal army's uh, Hindu and Muslim troops rebelled against their English masters, not because they resented the presence of foreigners in India, or even their rule over it, but at least rhetorically because they feared the settlement there of Europeans, who sought to subvert what today would be called Indian values and replace them with Christian ones. Whether these 19th century Indian fears were more justified than our 21st century European ones, what is interesting about the turn to civilization in discussions of Muslim immigration is the fact that its terms of reference seem to have undergone a strange reversal. Now it is Europe that is portrayed as being under threat from colonial settlement an Islam-civilizing mission that will end up subverting the continent's indigenous values. Although such warnings about the West's decline have come in many different forms since they were pioneered during the 18th century, the mirror image of imperialism, this one in particular, offers us deserves scrutiny. Regarded in the image of one of its former colonies, Europe is described as falling under the sway of Muslims neither by design necessarily nor even by a clash of arms but maybe in some version of that famous fit of absent-mindedness that was once said to have procured Britain her empire in India. The problem, in other words, is not Islam so much as Europe's own tolerance and thus inability to defend itself. But what accounts for this desire to turn Europe into a caricature of one of, her, of, one of its former colonies? In other words, I'm suggesting that you know almost everything in this rhetoric of fear we've already seen, but it was anti-European. The answer, as I have suggested, has to do with anxieties about the emergence of Europe as a federated unit. What's interesting about the European Union is that it represents a new kind of global (coughs) polity, one that is is extraordinary in that while being something more than a free trade zone um, or alliance of nation-states, it lacks the kind of sovereignty that has been the hallmark of all political forms in modern times. Europe, in other words, indubitably exists as a polity, but at the same time does not, and it's much remarked upon inability to act decisively in the global arena uh, demonstrate this and in this way it is in many ways and in this way it is in many ways like islam as a global actor one that also lacks sovereignty and even institutional foundations thus occupying a curious position between political existence and non existence It is because Europe lacks sovereignty that I think it is increasingly defined against its similarly placed Islamic rival in terms of values and civilization. This might also be why the threat of Muslim colonization is seen to affect Europe and not the United States, despite the latter's growing Muslim population and unrivaled status as a target of Islamic militancy. Indeed, it is instructive to note that none of the many competing visions of American decline take Islam to be an important factor in their narratives despite George Wilders' attempts to make this the case. You know, he doesn't have many takers in the U.S. For on the domestic front, it is still Mexican and other illegal immigrants who are seen as threatening the American way of life, as Samuel Huntington himself made clear in the last book he wrote, which was devoted to this politically contentious subject. And on the international front, it is China and, to a lesser degree, India that are acknowledged as the chief competitors of the United States, at least in economic terms, with Iran, North Korea, and even Al-Qaeda, simply posing it a number of dangerous but manageable security threats. Um, but all this still doesn't explain why it is that colonialism provides the most compelling model of Europe's decline in the face of Muslim reassertion. Europe, I would like to claim, has always been united in the form of an empire, whether religious one, as was the case with the Holy Roman Empire, secular, as with the Napoleonic conquest, or racist, as with the Nazis. Indeed, it was during its last incarnation as a fascist empire that Europe was conceived as being threatened by immigration and the hybrid values that resulted from it, of which the Jews represented the chief internal example. Not the purity of the outsider then, but rather his am- amalgamation with European civilization posed the greatest threat to the latter, For it, is, uh, for it and it is therefore interesting to note, that the guardians of European values today are also concerned with the hybrid mixing of cultures, which is why their favorite terms of opprobrium tend to evoke this non-racial miscegenation. Of these, the three most popular among writers accused of Islamophobia, like um, the Bat uh, the pseudonym for the polemicist Gisele Littman, are undoubtedly Eurabia, a name for the continent under Muslim domination, Vimitude. A description of those who accept the subordinate status of Dhimmi or non-Muslim in classical Islamic legal theory, and Islamofascism, an ideological category that links Islamic militancy in particular to the history of Europe. So you know all the the worst bits of uh, Islamic um, totalitarianism are seriously about mixing and hybridity and Europeanization. Since it appears to lack sovereignty, Europe receives its political identity from the outside this time as part of a Muslim empire. The fact that this empire turns out to be a mirror image of Europe's own tells us that colonialism remains an unresolved issue in much of the continent and is able, therefore, to revisit its politics in such ghostly ways. But the turn to empire also makes it clear that the partisans of a beleaguered West can only think of their victimization in colonial terms. Rather than simply taking the place of their former subjects, however, these Europeans... Uh, those Europeans who hold such views appear to be claiming that the true Occidentals in this story are in fact Muslims. After all, it is precisely Islam's unwavering confidence and conquering spirit that these men and women both admire and despise. For the lack of such qualities in contemporary Europe is what they constantly bemoan." It's actually quite amazing how you know, you can, if you transpose the story to the 19th century, you can see it completely reversed there. You know, here you have European colonialism, they are more virile, they are stronger, we have lost out, we are weak, we are too tolerant. Um, you know, they take us over, we need to learn from them, but at the same time we must resist them. You know, it's, anyone familiar with imperial history? And you know, you all, this is freakishly, you know, um, uh, you know similar. It doesn't hold in America, which is very interesting, right? You don't have the same story, and immigration is not Muslim immigration in America. Um, Muslims may even be said to represent the truest of Europeans in this negative way, constituting, as they do, a supposedly uniform and universal problem in a continent seen as having lost its own unity, cultural as much as political in the wake of the Cold War. Whatever the conflicts that Muslims are part of in Europe's many societies, including street crime, anti-Semitism, patriarchal oppression, and terrorism, their wealth, influence, numbers, and political affiliations cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, be said to pose an existential threat for the continent or even for its cherished values, constituting, as they do, less than 5% of the Union's population. So, of course, there are many towns and cities in which you have, you know, 20% or more Muslim. Um Indeed, as I have tried to show above, descriptions of the Islamic threat tend to fall into familiar narratives from other times and places, though they do gesture towards a very real question, that of defining politics for a global arena that possesses none of its own. In any case, the list of European values threatened by Muslim immigration is a contradictory one, including as it does historical rivals like Christianity and the Enlightenment, clumped together. Um, together with a hodgepodge of others such as secularism, humanism, tolerance, democracy, and science. The last time such a disparate set of values, internally contradictory often, um, was deployed in this reified manner to define the essence of Europe. It happened to be in that continent's various colonies and as part of a civilizing mission. And so it is only appropriate that these same values should now return to Europe in all their purity, naming, as they do, a place lacking sovereignty and without politics of its own. Is it possible to say that newly defined by its values, Europe as a civilization transcending all political and even geographical determinations has returned to the continent from its redoubts in Africa and Asia? Even the word European, after all, which until recently had little currency in the continent itself, has always been used in in former colonies to identify the citizens of its several states by a collective name the use of the word European. I want to argue it's actually much more familiar in the colonies than it is in Europe itself. Um, uh, And then, as much as now, the term European did not designate people by race alone, for which other terms were available, and certainly not by geography, since included within its ranks were also Americans, Australians, or South Africans but primarily by the civilization they all were meant to share. We might even say that much of Europe's history is located in Asia, Africa and Americas, rather than in the continent itself. For until quite recently, countries like Britain and France, Spain and Portugal, Belgium and the Netherlands were more closely connected in political, economic and cultural terms with their colonies abroad than with their immediate neighbors. Only when such ties were weakened by decolonization, in other words, could a European community become a possibility. And if this is true, then Europe really is a creation of its empire, brought back to the place of its origin by Muslim immigrants.